1: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your
2: support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. And this is, oh, I've actually got a bit excited and recording in quite quick succession. This is the second episode of the monthly, still to be named at the time of recording, Naval but um, naval Maritime episodes. I brought back a popular speaker, mainly because we started talking about shipping and trade in our previous recording, and I brought back Nick Morton who you may remember is the writer of The Mongol Storm, The Crusader States and Their Neighbours, Medieval Military Orders, and he's an associate professor at the Nottingham Trent University, and he's here today to talk about Crusader maritime trade and innovation within the Crusader states and Middle East. So, uh, Nick, welcome back. How are you doing?
1: Fine, thanks. Yeah, great to be back on the show.
2: Yeah, I think you record as many as I do at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) But um, as we found through, like, our, our previous chats... You know, the misconception is that the crusading states and the Middle East is very us and them, very polar and that they're two separate worlds and they don't really mingle. But we were talking about this last time. and That's not actually the case. And you have quite a lot of international trade going on between them, don't you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is the Near East in the medieval period. So a huge amount of trade passes through the region. From the east, you've got the Silk Roads coming out of China and Central Asia. Carrying textiles and other products westward, south under the Caspian Sea, then up through cities like Mosul and Aleppo to the Levantine coast of the Eastern Mediterranean, and with some caravans dropping south to go to to the Sinai Desert to Egypt, and then you have the Silk Roads. So, and then you have the spice routes from India and Southeast Asia, bringing goods by ship. Um, up the Persian Gulf to um, places like Baghdad, and then from there up to cities like Aleppo and the coast, or indeed all the way to Egypt where they're taken by canal and baggage animal animal to um, ports like Alexandria and Damietta. And then there's trade from Africa as well, the Trans-Saharan Gold Routes, among others, many goods being brought up either across the Saharan Desert or up the east coast of Africa. So a huge volume of trade. Passes through the Near East. What makes this so interesting is well, there's many things that make it interesting, but one of the things that I always find interesting about it is that you've got in the Eastern Mediterranean region, you've got the Crusader states, and north of Egypt, they control most of the coast. In fact, for many periods, they control all the coast, including all the deep water ports. But they don't extend very far inland, and so those ports of the Crusader states depend On the big inland cities like Damascus and Aleppo and Mosul, which act as major centers for trade. So they need to work with those inland centers if the trade's going to roll. And the same thing goes the other way around. The rulers of places like Mosul, Aleppo and Damascus have to work with the Crusader states if they're going to get keep the commerce going. So they have an interdependent relationship. They've both got to keep the trade running. And if they don't keep the trade running, they're going to suffer because a huge amount of their revenue comes from trade. So, in fact, whatever their religious differences may be and however much they may or may not be a cause for war, they have to work together. This has to be something that functions or they're all going to suffer. So it creates another interesting dimension to the history of the Near East at the time of the Crusades
2: absolutely it's the, the uh the modern phrase of money makes the world go round and where there's money to be made you have to put aside your differences
1: it's certainly a factor in the equation yeah
2: i must admit that well, I didn't mention this before we started recording uh, this morning i did sit down and glance through uh your youtube channel and there's an episode on trade and you bring up a a trade map and anyone listening you should go and check out Nick's channel would we'll, would we'll do a plug for the link at the end but there is um I was looking at the trade map and I'd not I'd not really considered how complicated it would be. You've got goods coming from all over the place. So what what kind of goods were coming from different countries and where were they all going?
1: If it's the silk road the simple answer to that is light and expensive. Goods have got to be transported over hundreds thousands of miles to get from China or pops of Central Asia to the Near East. And so if that's going to be economically viable the only things really that could be carried are things that meet that criteria, light and expensive, because cheap and, cheap and light or heavy and expensive, you just can't transport them and make a profit at the end of it all. So things like silk work very well, also forms of types of ceramic as well, they can be um, traded effectively. But there's also a lot of local trade going on in the Near East as well, because these places aren't just transit zones for trade, they produce goods themselves. So Damascus is famous for fruit and for intellectual life, also for its metal crafts and weapons, Aleppo also has um, many important products, and so do many of the um, cities of the Crusader states. So Antioch, Antioch is famous for its eels, believe it or not, from a nearby lake. Um, the port of St simeon which is Antioch's port, is famous for its ceramics. Acre and Tyre, further south, are famous for their glassware. But many of these goods also, again. Cr- build this interdependent relationship because a lot of the trade is local. You have the big international trade routes, but there's a lot of local trade going on as well. And just to give a few examples, um, the Near East has very little iron. Hmm. So as a result, areas with significant iron deposits become very important commercially and geopolitically. And so there's a Christian kingdom in the north Of the area I'm mostly concerned with called Silesian Armenia. It's in what today would be part of southern Turkey. And there's good iron deposits there. And um, it's a small Christian kingdom in the mountains in that area. But the area that particularly needs the iron is Egypt, which is under Muslim rule. But to get to Egypt, the iron has to go down the coast of the Levant, down the eastern Mediterranean coast. And those are the coastal waters controlled by the Crusader states to bring that iron to Egypt. And so as a result, Egypt needs the iron. It can't get away from that, that need for iron. And so that's got to be managed in and amongst the diplomacy and war of the of, of this evolving events of the era. But the vice versa, Egypt produces a huge amount of grain and cereal crops, which many areas in the region don't. Uh, this is the, the fertility of the Nile Delta and its annual floods. And so that also has to be managed because other parts of the Near East need those grain imports to feed their population. So there's tremendous commercial interdependency and they all know it. And this, again, it adds a dimension to the history of the Crusades and indeed the many other big processes taking place in the region. It is about the profits, but it's also about survival. There are goods here that they've got to have. And that they have got to receive from other people, and that creates an interdependency network, which is all very interesting.
2: Absolutely, I remember you said something as well about wood was quite quite a premium, but there was an area in the in the region that was famous for its wood.
1: Very similar to wine, so the the best timber in the region is um, is in the north, what today would be southern Turkey. In this period, it would be the southern parts of the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate. For some periods, the southern part of the Byzantine Empire in Anatolia and the kingdom of Silesia and Armenia, some very wooded mountains in the north. But the further south you go, there's far, far less woodland. And so if you want to have good quality timber, whether for shipbuilding or for construction work, it's going to have to come south through the coastal waters controlled by the Crusader states. And there, too, agreements have to be reached. They've all got an interest in the trade and the trade working. And they all need these goods. And just to give you an example of that, um, there's a really big crusade that tried to conquer Egypt between 1217 and 1221. And the crusade was enormous military failure viewed from the crusaders perspective for the Ayyubid rulers of Egypt. It was a tremendous victory. But it's notable that one of the victory conditions that they um, arranged alongside big ticket items like the withdrawal of the crusading army is the Ayyubids of Egypt wanted any spare masts that the Crusader fleet possessed to be left on the quay in the port city of Damietta. Because masts were so important and so difficult to get, they wanted to make sure that any spare masts were available, they got them. And so even in big treaties like this, where they're negotiating the end of a war, a pile of masts is still a major consideration for rulers who have trouble accessing good quality timber.
2: Oh wow, yeah. I mean again that's something that you that people wouldn't necessarily consider. Like you said, you would be arguing when you look at the treaties, it'd be like, Yes, we want this bit of land, we want you to leave here. Please leave us any masks you might have. Sorry what? And it's the sort of thing that yeah. people would get, but it's such an important important thing.
1: Yeah, I mean um, coming out to the big picture. There's so much going on. Um I don't know, if if ever I, I go to a I don't know, a reception of some kind or a party as you do a dinner party. And people say, "Oh, what do you do? And I say, well, I I study the Crusades. Um, And they say, oh, yes. And and the one thing they think they know about it is that it is very simple. It's a Christian versus Muslim war. And that's it. Yeah. And it is. there, there, There is a dimension of that. But there's so much going on that shapes the geopolitics of the region. There's trade, there's commerce, there's mutual dependency, there's population movements there's dynastic rivalries it's not well understood that actually many of the big battles of this era have christians and muslims on both sides and so it's it's so much more complicated than simply a map with a line down the middle and christian territory and muslim territory on the different sides of that front line it's it's a complex picture and therefore a very interesting one um, i've always found
2: yeah absolutely it's uh, something i've definitely been finding out in the course of all the record of the recordings we've been doing <laughs> um, but to throw in an, uh, another dimension, is what you, you mentioned there were spice trades coming in from India. Well, can you tell us about those?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, spices is a sort of collective term used in Western Christendom to describe an assortment of things that um, are pro- produced in Southeast Asia and in India, um, things like nutmeg, cumin, pepper, among others. And these are tremendously expensive. I mean, we can probably wander down to, I don't know to the local supermarket, Sainsbury's and Tesco's, and buy I don't know pe- pepper very cheaply. We probably wouldn't even think about it as a major item on the shopping list. But in this period, it's yeah. expensive. It's it's a it's a show off food. If you want to impress the guests, you bring out I don't know a peppered dish, and that will get a wow factor yeah. because it's it's been transported for thousands of miles, and it's changed. The cargoes have changed hands, and the merchants have made a profit on that cargo at each leg of that journey. And so when the climate reaches Western Christendom, its value is extortionate. And I mean, even in the Near East and other um, territories, it's still very expensive. And so, yes, trade trade coming from Southeast Asia and India. And you have other things as well, you think like precious stones that come from the, that region as well. They are then traded, often via Egypt, into the Mediterranean trade with places like the Byzantine Empire and the Muslim territories of Western North Africa, or indeed Western Christendom. And it's it is very lucrative. And so spice ships, um, they they have to be very heavily protected on some occasions. And people pay very close attention to shipments of that sort of good because of the sheer value attached to them. Another thing, it's not a spice per se, but it's it's again, it's, it's a foodstuff that becomes mm. an important dimension to the history of the Near East is sugar. Because you can produce sugar in volume in Egypt but also in many of the coastal areas of the Near East, the Knights Templar produce sugar in volume, and then they sell it back to Western Christendom, and the money they get from that trade goes in some, some way to explaining how they can afford their huge castles and armies. And so, yeah, sugar and people's sweet tooth in the Mediterranean periods, you know, it really seems to develop not just in Western Christendom, but elsewhere. And so the demand for sugar goes up, just as supply goes up which means that this becomes very, very expensive and very lucrative for anyone who can produce it and trade it.
2: Yeah, it's a very good way to fund your war effort, um, if, save you say, you're being reliant on anyone else. So looking at the trade routes, they seem to go to, you have like key ports, like Constantinople, along the uh, modern day Jerusalem and the Egyptian coasts. Were there any countries or kingdoms who rose to the top of the trading war as such and was there a lot of competition between them?
1: So yeah there is a lot of competition and one of the major features of the history of the Near East in this era is the rise of the Italian cities because up to about the year 1000 much of the Mediterranean was controlled by Islamic fleets often operating out of North Africa who controlled both the sort of the military dimensions of the Mediterranean world but also its commercial dimensions as well. And there's a later Muslim author called Ibn Khaldun who says regarding this period that not a single Christian plank floated on the Mediterranean, which it's it's an exaggeration, but there's no doubt that this is a period when the Mediterranean trade is dominated by Muslim merchants. But increasingly in the 11th century, so this is the decade before the First Crusade, you have the rise of Italian cities like Pisa, Genoa, and Venice. And it's their fleets that increasingly begin to dominate the sea routes, not just to the Near East, but also along the um, North African coast and into the Black Sea region as well. And they become dominant in many areas. So pretty much every power has to do dealings with the Genoese and Venetians and Pisans. And what what they're after is trade concessions. They want to pay as little tax as possible, particularly export duty, on the goods they're taking out of these areas. Again, they're thinking to maximize their profits. And of course, rulers are often happy to give those trade concessions because they want to increase the trade. And even if they're losing out, say, they've reduced their tax from, say, 10% to 5%, if the volume of that trade is going up by 400%, then their interests, it still works for them to, to increase that. But as with, I mean, it's, I suppose so far we've seen trade almost as a sort of peacemaking force in the. People have to do business whether they like it or not, and so therefore they have to think about that when they're doing diplomacy. But trade can create as many conflicts as it stops because people are avaricious, human beings are avaricious, and so you do have examples of different rulers playing Italian cities off against each other so that they can get the better deal for themselves. The Italian cities fought amongst themselves on many occasions because they want to make sure that the trade concession in any given area goes to their city and not to those I don't know the Pisans or the Genoese or whoever it is that's not them, Um, and sometimes they will apply pressure, military pressure, on rulers to wring um, trade concessions out of them. So we'll do business with you, but those trade concessions better be good, or we'll attack you, or we'll attack your other merchants or your shipping. And so it can get very hostile. It's not as if trade is a peacemaking force. Certainly not in all examples. And these so these Italians are a major feature of the history of the Mediterranean era. And they're also a major feature of the rise of the Crusader States, because often it's the Italian fleets and their trade trading vessels that bring in the settlers and pilgrims and Crusaders that populate the Crusader States or certainly the Frankish or Western European population in the Crusader States. It's also these ships that start to set up the big sort of trade umbilical cords between the Crusader States and their ports, places like Latakia and Tyre and Acre, which then go on to provide economic basis for the Crusader states, which depend very heavily on trade.
2: I have a feeling that it's a bit out of the period, but I have a nagging thought of um, Venice being quite ferocious later in the period. Um, I think that, I have a feeling they had a fight with the Ottomans, but I, I do think that's after the Crusades.
1: Well, The Crusades think... extend for centuries after the medieval period, but you're right, the Venetians are very aggressive with trade often that aggression is um, directed primarily in this period at other Italian cities. Although the Byzantine Empire, of course, was conquered by a large crusading army in 1204 by the armies of the Fourth Crusade. And um, the Venetians played a major hand in that. And the one thing they wanted from the division of the empire that followed the fall of Constantinople Constantinople, is they wanted um, the key islands that either produced key trade goods or were the main trading emporiums in the Mediterranean because they want to control that control as much of that trade as they can. And when Constantinople does fall to the Fourth Crusade, the one thing the Venetians want right up front is unrestricted access to the Black Sea and all its trade, trade routes. And that's an entirely different set of trade routes. We haven't even mentioned that yet, the trade routes going through places like the Crimea, which is very important in this period, just as it is important in the 21st century, as we've been seeing in the horrific news going on surrounding the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. But, yeah, in the med- med- medieval period, that is also a very important a trade route, and the Venetians want a monopoly of that following the fall of Constantinople, at least in part, to their forces in 1204.
2: Absolutely, and just to briefly plug the book I'm writing, um, the, uh, the Bosphorus controlling the Straits, the Dardanelles Straits, are not just important in 1915 for the Royal Navy, but also in this period as well. So if you own Constantinople, if you hold Constantinople, you control all trade coming from that region of Russia through to the Mediterranean. So Constantinople is just that, so important.
1: It's the only bit of water connecting the Black Sea to the Aegean and therefore the Mediterranean. Although I have heard, actually, that there are plans to build a a new canal, a shipping canal. I don't know if if they're going to lead to anything, but... um, I have heard rumours of a shipping canal that's um, being planned uh, to uh, create a second route. But uh, I don't know.
2: Right. Uh-huh. That would have been handy about 200 years ago. <laughs> OK, so we, we kind of mentioned the ships in passing. How how do they evolve through the period?
1: So there, there's lots of types of ship. And um, perhaps the most common type would be simple, small coasting ves- coastal vessels, ships that conduct a local trade. Carrying maybe a few passengers or some trade goods between the big ports of the East Mediterranean, and there'd be thousands of these vessels. So I think probably when you imagine, I don't know, the coastline of the medieval Near East, you should probably imagine that just a cloud of these vessels, particularly around the big ports, is ghosting up and down the coast, bringing passengers and small cargoes from one city to another. And so they would be the most common. But then you also have the seagoing ships, the deep water ships as well. And those fall into various different classes. Um, The really big ones are are the Naves, which simply translates as ships. And these could be very considerable. So when we imagine medieval ships, it's easy to imagine them sort of being quite small and then maybe getting bigger in the early modern period until they get much bigger in the modern period. In fact, that's quite misleading. Uh, Medieval ships are huge. And some of them can carry over a thousand people plus their trade goods. And then with some of those thousand people in a fair degree of comfort. So actually, these are very considerable vessels and they rise quite a long way out of the water with several, several layers of decks. And these ships are the, are the lifeblood of the Crusader States because they bring in the, the population, the people, the warriors who will then defend the Crusader States. But they're used by other powers, too. For trade and for, car- for conducting uh, an ongoing commerce between the various ports of the Mediterranean, as well as passengers. Then you've got the galleys, and these are warships. They're lighter, mm. they're lower, um, generally, they're powered both by oars and/or by sails, or sometimes both. And they're much faster, particularly if they want to do it in battle, where they, the rowers can produce maybe seven to 10 knots for short spaces of time. It is the Mediterranean, it is hot, the rows can only produce that, that sort of burst of speed for a limited yeah. period. And they're gonna need a lot of water, of course, but galleys can't be away from land for long because otherwise the crew will dehydrate and they'll run out of water very quickly. But galleys are the major war, warships and they're equipped with a range of weapons, Um, galleys from many Muslim powers and also Byzantine powers uh, often used Greek fire, which is which was a, a combination of chemicals which could then be projected and ignited through a tube and then fired like a a, a flamethrower against enemy vessels. Ships from Western Christendom don't seem to have been quite so keen on um, Greek fire; they seem to have relied much more on heavy crossbows or lines of um, of crossbowmen. So. That that seems to be their primary weapon, but you hear reports of uglier weapons if you like, too. Um, perhaps the ugliest being powdered lime. And the the idea there would be that you would release bags of powdered lime upwind of an enemy vessel. The ship, sorry, the wind would then carry that powdered lime downwind into the enemy vessel. And if you get powdered lime in your eyes, you will almost instantly go blind. So, Uh uh, yeah, it's it's a well, no weapons, nice, but that's no. Velocity. So, um, so yeah, there's the this is the way in which war is fought, and so many of the battles of this era would have consisted of a small number of galleys trying to tackle a big ship, a big narvis. um, and the big challenge then would be trying to get up onto the deck of the navis because it's it rises many feet above the water, whereas often the galleys only have a freeboard, so the area between the deck and the there's a distance of the deck and the and the sea of maybe two or three feet mm-hmm. galleys are also very vulnerable to heavy weather, so the Mediterranean doesn't have a sort of the big swell you would associate with the Pacific or the uh, southern Ocean or the Atlantic, but it can have some quite serious chop, and galleys could struggle quite a lot in heavy winds or um, steep seas, and so they've got to be very careful when they uh, set out
2: were they still using um bows as well to try and cut into enemy vessels or cut them in half.
1: That's less common. That seems to be dying out in this period. Uh, One thing they do have, which seems to be a growing trend in the medieval period, is horse transports. And this is a very interesting technological dimension of ships in this era. How do you get a horse from, well, the classic one would be from southern Italy, a port like Brindisi or Barletta, or from Sicily, places like Messina, all the way to the Crusader States with the horse intact at the end of it. And that, that's a big challenge for the uh, <laughs> sailors in this era. And the basic way they did it was to create slings in the, the decks of their ships so that they would put the slings under the horse's belly and they'd lift the entire horse up from the deck. So the horse's feet, or whose I should say, aren't touching the deck at all. And when the when the, the boat rolls, rather than the horse sort of staggering and falling over and breaking its legs, the horse will just roll in the slings with the um with the the movement of the ship. And if you have quite a lot of horses quite close to each other, a little bit like sailors in hammocks, they won't swing that much because they'll be stabilized to some degree by the horse next door to them. Hmm. The danger with that is that very quickly, because their legs are just hanging, their muscles will atrophy and It'll be, it'll be very bad for them. And the danger is when you then lower them from the swing, when you lower them from the slings, their legs will break or they'll just buckle because they just lost condition. So ship transports have to um, stop off at islands or anywhere they can at regular intervals to recondition the horses so they can then survive the next leg of the journey all the way to uh, wherever they're going. Wow. That's,
2: um, again, that's just something I... Uh, 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 uh prime piece of logistics i'd not i'd not really considered you know you, i think i've mentioned this before you watch kingdom of heaven you see everyone riding around on horses and at no point do you think how the hell do they get all them there and like you said that the whole idea of the horses legs sort of suffering from atrophy it just it's something that you just wouldn't consider
1: yeah i mean it's uh, obviously people from the crusader states um rely on local horses as well but there there does seem to be um a real trend of creating stud farms in southern Apulia to raise really big war horses. And those war horses are crucial for the Crusader states because they're dependent on heavy cavalry. So they need those big horses to be um, uh, transported to the east. Not just, it has to be said, for the use of Frankish knights, but also they're very popular with other powers in the region. And again, we, we need to break down this sort of simplistic, sort of Christian versus Muslim states idea. They trade these big horses with other powers as well as using them themselves. And they will buy in other horses for other purposes, um, from other, other powers in the region as well. So it's, it, there's a, there's a market for all these things. And there's a market for lots of things. I mean, mercenaries are another one. So mercenary companies will travel often by ship, bringing their horses with them from one part of the Mediterranean to another. And mercenary companies have very little interest in who they serve often. If the money is there, they'll serve them. And so they too will move between Christian powers and Muslim powers, depending on where the money is available.
2: Yeah, yeah. Further break down the the polar side. Where did sort of the Christian ship design and Islamic ship designers sort of trade idea, trade ideas and innovations to improve their vessels?
1: Well, this is what this is again another dimension to it all because I mean, there's been all sorts of arguments in the past about which civilization is more technologically advanced and things like that. Um, and yet there have been all sorts of books that have stressed, oh, no, 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 this, this society was more advanced than that society and <laughs> making these kinds of po- points. But I mean, I, th- I think in some ways we need to be careful not to fall victim to modern ideas of technology because we're used to the idea that let's say that, that someone had a big breakthrough in some kind of strategic technology, whether that's ship design or weapons design or something like that, we would be expecting to hear that whoever had developed that new approach would make sure they kept that information and the blueprints for it or whatever under lock and key, whether that's Mm. a corporation or a government and that no one would see them because you don't want that information to be shared. You don't want your rivals to acquire the, the blueprints for that, fighter jet or that warship or whatever it is you've built that's a modern thing in the medieval period it's different because the artisans who make these things weapons ships or any other form of technology they are not hired permanently or very rarely so by an individual state so it won't be that i don't know the kingdom of jerusalem or the mamluk empire in egypt they won't necessarily have shipyards which solely employ their people and nothing else what you tend to get a lot of is migration among artisans so professional migration so if the mamluk empire of egypt wants a fleet the relevant professionals will go and make a fleet for the mamluk empire in egypt and then if the kingdom of jerusalem wants one they'll go there instead and then maybe they'll if the mongols want one On the Persian Gulf, they'll go there instead and make a fleet for the Mongols. And so actually the artisans, Mm -hmm. the shipbuilders, the people who make stuff, this goes for castle design and palace design, the design of religious buildings. If you want something made, you don't just turn to your own artisans. You let it be known you want to build a castle or a fleet of ships and the artisans will arrive and they will build these things for you. And so this creates an interesting environment where you might have artisans arriving from all across the region or further afield. They've heard there's work. So here they are to do it. And they're bringing with them their own designs, their own ideas, their own strategies and technologies and tips and tricks. And if you do it this way, it's that much stronger and all the things that make technology advance. And because they're working side by side, they share these things. Hmm. So it's quite common, in fact, that innovations in all sorts of things happen almost simultaneously in different societies. There's been a, a fabulous book by someone called Michael Fulton recently, looking at the development of the counterweight trebuchet, so uh, a siege catapult. And he notices that um, the catapults of this kind emerge in Christian and Muslim armies almost simultaneously. And my take on that is it's simply that that siege engineers, like other artisans, are employable by all parties. If you want catapults built, Here they are. They'll work for you. And because they're crossing boundaries so easily, technology tends to change hands very fast. And so it's not uncommon to see architectural um, techniques used in Western Christendom appear in Muslim architecture. And it's not uncommon to see aspects of Muslim architecture appear in Christian buildings because they're all hiring the same people or at least enough of the same people for those technologies to transfer. So the technological balance is often flat. Because they all have access to the same people,
2: and they're all working in the same region as well. So you,
1: I mean, is at least a caveat to that is you do seem to get some cities which which become almost like sort of centres of excellence. And so Venice is well known for producing um, galleys, it, and it produces produces galleys in volume, and it produces them quite a lot. So hmm. often a Venetian shipwright might be very much very much sought sought after. In the same way, if you wanted certain types of glass, there are cities that really specialise in that. But even so, there's no the idea of a hard boundary, or the idea that a city will say we produce a really good form of I don't know ceramics, so no one's leaving. <laughs> We're going to keep hold yeah. of you, and only we will produce these ceramics. So There's very little sense of that. Artisans move; it's not a problem, and you know, and say, you know, there aren't passports or border controls in the, quite the same way. So there's nothing stopping people just going where they want.
2: Yeah, like we said earlier, uh, people go where the money where the money is.
1: Yeah. And this isn't a problem for people. So we hear about we hear stories of I mentioned mercenaries. They can travel pretty much wherever they want. And there's there's no sense or very little sense that people say, well, you know, you're from a different religion to us. Therefore, you can't um, serve, serve in our army or you can't build us a, a building or you can't conduct that particular trade. You, you just don't come across that, really. And even pilgrims who have a very specific purpose of traveling to one region or another, they can pass fairly freely. Uh, between Christians and territory it, it it happens a lot
2: we we talked about the the shipping side a bit so how do the harbors evolve and the sort of equipment that they have available to the shipping
1: okay so for a big port it would go something like this a merchant arrives um uh with with their, their crew and their naves at a major sh- at a major at a major port uh when they arrive the first thing they've got to negotiate is the harbor chain so the big ports of this era will have a big chain normally attached to large logs to create a permanent boom across the Mm harbour. And so that boom, if it's a really big harbour, that boom will have to be lowered to enable the ship to enter harbour. For smaller ports, what would happen is the big ship would enter the the harbour, probably cast anchor, and then have its goods removed by lighter or small transport vessel to the dock, uh, quite probably quite rare for ships to get, come alongside docks, and then it would have to leave that harbour to create space for the next ship to come in. In some cases, the ship wouldn't go into the harbour at all. It would simply um, put down its anchors, and then the ships would come out, the smaller ships would come out from the harbour to transport goods and passengers. That could be very dangerous if there's a, a storm of yeah. But Once the goods have reached the dock, they'll then be put in warehouses. So if you go to many Mediterranean ports and you look at sort of the old harbour, you'll often see these sorts of... Um, uh, often semi-circular doors or fronts to the, along the along the back of the dock, and the idea is the merchant would then store uh, their goods in those in those lockups, and they're quite secure. They have secure um, doors, and there's probably probably um, soldiers along those doors or people just to make sure that they're kept safe, and they'll be kept in those lockups until an assessor has arrived from the local commercial court. And the assessor will go through the goods in that warehouse, count them, check them and levy whatever the relevant amount of taxation is, after which it would then be the merchant's ability to trade those goods, whether directly out of the warehouse if if the merchant already has a buyer or in the market or souk or wherever um, is the main trading forum in that area. That, that's broadly speaking how it would work
2: only because I feel I need to ask this question because because people like pirates <laughs> was there uh, much of a problem with uh, piracy in the not just in the Mediterranean but with, we we sort of mentioned earlier but when, with the spice ships coming up from India that they were quite valuable or wherever there's value there's always someone willing to take it was, was piracy uh, a consideration
1: it was uh, and most most states produced pirates some even seem to have licensed have a sort of A form of licensing them, as Corsairs, as with Corsairs, the world over, the basic principles being you can take from who you want, provided it's not us and it's not the people we were in in an alliance with. Um, And lots of powers did that. Uh, To counter that, sometimes merchant vessels would have armed escorts that have weapons themselves as well, but often ships would travel in convoys in order to protect themselves so that you've got strength in numbers, that too could be helped to guarantee against piracy. But, yeah, piracy is an ongoing issue. I suspect the ship's most vulnerable to it would not have been the big ocean-going vessels, which are quite hard to tackle, but probably the more coastal vessels, they would probably be the greatest danger. But I could just add a tag on to that one because you were going to ask me what were, the, what, what, what were the dangers to ships crossing the sea. I mentioned pirates, but there are other dangers too. Um, so. Yeah. And and there were other dangers as well. Uh, There were real dangers, but also imagined dangers. So in real dangers would be storms. Ships in this era can't always survive storms in the way that modern day cargo vessels can always be guaranteed to survive storms. And for Mm -hmm. this reason, ships don't tend to travel across the Mediterranean between October and March because this is the storm season. It's just too dangerous. Mm -hmm. So typically you'd have the March convoys arrival, which would be quite an event in many of these areas because they've been waiting to conduct trade or for new arrivals since the um, end of autumn, basically. But you've got imagined dangers as well. And so one report talks about the dangers posed to ships of sirens. Yeah. And so the, no. idea, the story goes that the sirens would um, sing their songs and it would either send the sailors to sleep or drive them to leap over the sides of their ships. And so there is actually a device to mariners on how to deal with these sirens should they attack. Because having either put you to sleep or um, sent you over the side, the sirens would then leap up onto the deck. And they're described as having being sort of half human, half bird, bird's heads. And they'd then attack anyone left in the crew um, with axes and weapons. And so the guidance on how to deal with sirens was to stop your ears with wax and then to shoot them down with crossbows. That's how you deal with sirens, apparently.
2: Wow, I mean, I know sailors are a superstitious lot, and even into the twentieth century. But um, you would have thought sirens would have died out with the ancient Greeks. You wouldn't have thought it'd still be going into the Middle Ages.
1: Yeah, and I think I think a crucial consideration here is there is so much in the medieval era that is unknown um, mm. to so many regions that the spaces on the map where they have maps, and in fact, maritime charts come in during this era, interestingly, Um, but the spaces on those maps which they genuinely know about, and this isn't just Western Christendom, this is pretty much everywhere, they know so little about what lies, say, 50 miles beyond their furthest border. It's it's unknown territory. And so as with unknown areas, even today, I mean, we have a fair grasp of what... um, the earth's surface looks like. We don't know much about what lies under the sea or under the earth or even in in space. And so for modern commentators, as for medieval commentators, if you don't know what's in an area, there is a tendency to let your imagination run wild. And we have plenty of Hollywood directors who are prepared to do that for us and make money out of it. Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes in the medieval era too. They've got people who are very happy to let their imagination fill the gaps in what we know.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I fell down a, a rabbit hole a few weeks ago, um, started reading about the going back over the Franklin Expedition and the fact that the because they didn't know where the Northwest Passage was, that the crews were considered to be, um, a lot of people commentators would describe them as the astronauts of their time because they were going to places and mapping when no one had ever been before. And then to come back to England and go, look what we've done. We found a way to China. And Vasco da Gama in this period, when he first goes to India, he's a massive celebrity.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's interesting oh, yeah. is that he he went several hundred years after the medieval after after the period I'm 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 focusing on hmm. in in um, in my work in my book. But there is there is an awareness of the Indian Ocean in Western Christendom, and there's even talk of trying to put um, commerce rages onto the Indian Ocean so as to knock out the trade routes connecting India to Egypt because egypt is seen as being the major power in the area the major reason why western christendom can't control jerusalem and so several people do suggest well why not put commerce raiders on the indian ocean block the trade with egypt impoverish egypt and then that will then reduce egypt's ability to stop a future crusade from trying to conquer jerusalem
2: oh wow so it's almost as if they're and i'm trying not to put a modern spin on it but it's almost like they're trying to Consider the war, the war on a more of a global, and say that very hesitantly, global um, theatre. So if we can take them out here, that will affect this end of the end of the trade chain.
1: Yeah, and, and Western Christendom's awareness of the wider world is growing rapidly in the 13th century, at least in part due to the Mongols. But again, it's not just them; it's it's all sorts of regions in the world are sending out travellers and explorers and sort of representatives of their religion. And they're coming back with, with stories and news, and their, their aware, awareness of the world and how it all fits together is growing and improving. And Mongols play a major role in that. And it's true for many civilizations, including the Mongols themselves.
2: Um, yeah, did the, um, we, we've spoken before about how the popular belief was that the Mongols were quite uh, nomadic and did a lot, most, mostly land based. Did they have any um, sort of seaborne merchant trade or naval vessels at all?
1: Not really. Um, not they themselves, but they ruled many civilizations that did, and they wanted those the traders in those civilizations to serve the Mongols' interests. And so, for example, uh, the Mongols drew upon uh, shipwrights and sailors along the eastern coast, the Pacific coast, or, uh, or the eastern areas of their empire to put together the fleets with which they would try unsuccessfully to conquer Japan, for example, in the southern Asia, maybe modern-day southern countries, 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 the modern day or southern Iraq, where it meets the Persian Gulf and places like that, they could draw in local traders as well. On one famous incident in the, tw- in, I think it's 1290, they actually transported a large group of Genoese sailors to Baghdad to build a fleet for them on the Indian Ocean. We know very little about that particular sort of expedition, but. They're interested in seafaring, but they normally want someone else to do it for them. And there's no reason why they should do it themselves because they do have control over so many maritime powers.
2: So, yeah, I, I can imagine the, with the Mongols being uh, a horse riding people.
1: Sure, yeah. And there's plenty of civilizations and trade routes that begin to reorientate themselves around the Mongols' courts. The Mongols are very interested in merchants and they do have merchants themselves. Um, but, yeah, there's very little evidence I've found of them actually becoming sort of active sailors in their own right rather than drawing those drawing upon the expertise of those under their control
2: and and kidnapping the genoese
1: (laughs) well the genoese is my choice um they i think they were hired to do it but yeah
2: yeah nick this has been really interesting um really enjoying our chats actually this is what third one we've done now and it's um every time i match it's great because being a. kind of tied to the 20th century at the moment and so it's nice to sort of explore other periods and and things and people are when people think about naval history maritime history they go for warships so it's good to it's it's it's, this has been good to sort of demonstrate how important maritime trade actually is not just to the crusades but to the entire region or even stretching from india to western christendom and how and the economies of so many countries and kingdoms so this, is, this has been really interesting. Thank, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. And as I as I said at the beginning, uh, you can you can find Nick's books online. I believe we have Mongol Storm on the History Hack Bookshop uh, Bookshop.org/historyhack, but or you just Google us on that. And um, also, uh, Nick, do you mind reminding everyone of the, your YouTube link? Because I I did subscribe, I completely forgot what the uh, link is, but
1: sure, yeah, it's, it's at Medieval Near East. But if you just type in my names at Nicholas Morton and Crusades or Mongols or something like that—you'll probably find me fairly quickly.
2: And I can vouch for that as what I did this morning, and uh, it was very, very interesting. And I look forward to watching some more. But uh, yeah, Nick, thanks very much for coming back and talking to me on about this.
1: Pleasure. Thank you.
2: Our incredible guests give us forty-five minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and
1: supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.